Honored to uh, get to talk to you today. Um, the high school radio or college radio? I forgot. It's a high school. Yeah. That's killer. Good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess just hop right into it. Um, recently, a uh, kind of fellow hard DC hardcore band, and uh, I believe friends of yours, if I'm right, uh, Bad Brains, um, were nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, and I'm wondering if they they were the first. I mean, according to people who don't count the Beastie Boys, uh, they're the first hardcore punk band to be nominated, uh, which kind of opens the door for bands like Minor Threat um, to kind of be nominated in coming years. Have you ever kind of thought about how you would react if you were nominated for that? No. It's absurd. I wouldn't even think about it. <laughs> I don't think we ever will be, and if we were, it wouldn't matter, because it'd be like, for me, it'd be like being awarded for, or like nominated for like a... Um, like a tire company. I mean, I just, I think, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame largely is, I mean, I'm not, they, I don't question their, the veracity or validity of their operation. It just it doesn't have much to do with me. They're a different, it's a different world. And, I mean, I think, you know, the bad brains for them is important. I don't think it's, I think, like, for me, I, I, I just don't, I, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that I wanted to destroy rock and roll. Like with the rock and roll industry, I just wanted to have. I didn't. I just wanted to do our own thing. I didn't want to be part of it. So, <clears throat> being offered an award by an organization that I feel such a so so little affinity for um, probably would not hold. You know, wouldn't hold much value for me. Um, you know, imagine for instance if you were some college and said that you're being awarded by the. National Drinking Straw Association, you know? Yeah. And you'd be like, what? I don't, that's not what I, <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, obviously, if someone. I've, I've used <laughs> straws before, but. Right, well, here's my <laughs> thought about that. I think that there's two things that probably, two, one of two things are probably at play with this particular situation with the bad brains. One is that there's somebody within the organization of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who is a visionary and believes that the bands that really have really inspired people on a roots level should also be acknowledged as opposed to just the ones who are, you know, well-known because they were commercial successes. So a band like the Bad Brains had an absolutely enormous cultural impact um, on many of us. And those of us who are impacted by them, I think, probably... I think it's fair to say impacted other people, you know. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is <clears throat> that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is hoping to establish some sense of credibility, um, and by naming bands or by involving bands who actually are these sort of much lesser known, but you know, have a lot of street credibility. Maybe that would bring more credibility to their to their operation. That's a possibility. I don't. I'm not trying to be cynical. I just it's just a possibility. Um, I think for the bad brains it's important. I think for them, you know, my sense is that they for them it's important because that's sort of been their central mission as a band, like their whole lives. I mean, I I first saw the bad brains in 1979, and 
Yeah, they were basically they were you know young adults. They were I think that <clears throat> Daryl was probably probably 19 when I first saw them. Um, and you know they still it's still a, this sort of a central thing in their lives. And so this kind of you know should they win, which is I don't know when I don't know I have no idea when the election. Yeah, I think that I yeah that already happened. Um, neither they, Bad Brains nor MC5. Got in, no. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> whatever. I mean, but I guess the nomination was is important for them, and it got them some exposure, and that's that's fine. That's good. I'm not mad about it. I just don't. It just doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Do you still talk with those guys? Do you still? No, not really. I mean, I know. I I've over the years, I've seen HR quite a few times, but HR is very. Yeah. Hard how's to he talk. doing? How's he doing? You know, Isn't he? He's he's stabilized. Okay, that's good. Yeah, he's, but he's, I mean, HR is somebody who, as a young man, you know, I spoke with a lot, and he was an incredibly vibrant and, like, again, a real visionary guy with millions of ideas, and just so he's interested and interesting. And in years, in recent years, probably the last 15 or 20 years even, you know, uh, you know I'm happy to see him, if only because, you know, he means he's still alive, which is nice. Um, but he, we don't really, it's not much to talk about because he doesn't really talk to you. He, he just, he's always just pleasantry. He's like, hey, how are you? I'm fine. You know, well, how have you been doing? Great. How's, are you making music? It's great. You know, it's just, there's nothing, it's just where he's at. And so I can't say I've talked, I don't really talk to him. I've not seen Gary in years or Earl, but Daryl and I have had a few, like we've been sort of in and out of touch over, the, you know, for a little while, you know, but nothing but no, I would say I'm regularly in contact, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so kind of um, moving on completely different, uh, to a completely different subject. Um, are you at all involved in the DC scene these days? Um, and do you, I mean... How do you find that? Um, like, do you get out to shows? Do you, I, both both watching bands and with the Evens very often and, and stuff well, like even that? Have not, we have been playing over the last few years, but we've been working on this new project that's slow, slowly coming together. We're in no real hurry, um, but we're working on new music um, with uh, somebody on bass. We're doing a sort of it's a slightly modified, I'm not playing the baritone, it's a different kind of arrangement. And But... It may or may not end up being a band. I don't know. We just enjoy playing. Like we practice this morning. We practice pretty much every morning. Um, uh, in terms of the scene, I don't. It's very hard for me to like. I don't know what the scene is, so I don't know how I'm to just say like it. Shows I, would, like, it I go to shows occasionally. I yeah. don't go. I mean, yeah. There's like there's a lot of shows here. I mean a lot. So, I mean any given night, there's probably one or two gigs going on that I. There's some connection to that I could go to. I don't go to that. I don't go to all those shows, um, partially because it would be impossible, uh, just in terms of logistically getting out there. I also I have an eight-year-old son, and I just assume, you know, I'm, you know, he's not going to live in my house forever. I like, I like, our, you know, like the groove, but also my ears are, you know, they're shot, you know. So like I, I have to, I, you know, I have tinnitus, you know, which is ringing in the ears. That's you know, constant, and so. If I go see a show, I don't. I mean, I'm not scared about going to shows, but I'm just not going to go stand around at a, a gig unless I'm really there's a reason. You know, I'm not just going to make the scene. Um, but you know, I'll go out. Like I'll go. Out, I'm going to see some bands tonight, and you know, I probably go out to. It probably averages like a you know, 
a week, a show every week or two. Yeah, I go to a lot. Of, I mean, I've been to so many shows, I can't, I honestly, honestly can't remember how many shows I've been to, obviously. But there's a lot of, like, for instance, there's a really vibrant underground sort of punk hardcore scene here in town that I don't really go to a lot of those shows. Not out of, they're, they're perfectly, they're great people and they're nice and all that. It's nothing like that. It's just that, in a way, I feel like I'm almost a distraction because I'm so, you know, I'm so reg- recognized and yeah. So like, kind of um, on along those lines, this is a very weird personal question, but uh, I I was in D.C. last summer and uh, I could have sworn that I saw you um, at a flag show at the Black Cat. Is that okay. is that correct or do, do you sure. do, are you aware of Flag? Of who? Flag. Am I aware of the band? Yeah. I mean, I know those guys really. I know those guys very well. Yeah, I know them. I know. I mean, of course. I mean, I. I mean, I wrote him for Black Flag in 1981. So I know. I mean, I know. I mean, and I. And I'm close friend with Chuck, the bass player, and yeah, I was. Told, I was there. I was at the gig. Oh, nice. Them so, so that was yeah. you. Yeah. Um. And yeah. And are you still like? In, I mean, I know he's not in Flag, but are you still kind of in contact with Henry Rollins? Do you guys ever hang out these Henry's days? Henry's my or? best friend. Henry's my best friend. I've been. I've been friends with Henry since I was 11 years old. We're still best friends. Like, we talked with each other. We're in con- constant contact. That's cool. I- I'm yeah. sure you've heard Henry stand up where he talks about, uh, like, the stuff you guys used to do as kids, and he has, like, the stories about those, um, about you guys, um, like, the rat poison and the ice cream uh, and stuff like that. Um, do you have any stories about... I actually did it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but that's how I heard about it, I guess. Um, do you have so any stories about friends. Rollins like that? Like, kind of just, you know, fun stories about Rollins when you guys were kids, um, kind of in that vein? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm sure I have hundreds. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I mean, it's Henry, kind of I, on I, the Henry spot. And I were pretty inseparable. Yeah. For, you know, I met him when I was 11, and then I went away. My family, had, my dad had a thing we had to do. He had a fellowship at a college. We moved out of town for some months. And when I first met Henry, my recollection at this point now is that I lived in a neighborhood, you know, we both lived in a neighborhood called Glover Park. He lived sort of down at the bottom of the, the neighborhood, the bottom of the hill. And um, I, there was, we knew, I just knew, the, you know, I knew the kids in the neighborhood and they said, oh, there's this new kid living down W Street um, and he's got a BB gun. And we're like, whoa, like, you know. Like, no way. So we went down and said, oh, yeah, he's got a snake and a BB gun. So we went down and knocked on the door, and this kid answered the door. And we're like, you know, we heard you got a BB gun. He's like, yeah. And so we just so we went and started, we just go to his basement, and he had a really, like, um, he had this little setup. He had a, <clears throat> he took a cigar box and cut slots in it, and he put poker chips in there, and then he had a big foam, thick foam, kind of like hard foam, board against the wall behind it and we would just target shoot the poker chips with his bb gun just listen to aerosmith and cheech and chong and on the stereo and that's how we get to know each other and then when i was out of town um my friends fell afoul of henry they got into uh, some scrap so when i got back like he was like out to beat their ass i was 13 years old i remember i got back and they were like oh this guy yeah we got that guy He's trying to, he's going to, he's mad at us. And I was like, and so then 
because by association he was mad with me. And then, so anytime we see Henry, just run, you know, just run. He was so burly. And I remember he actually caught me one time and threw me against a wall. And I said, I don't, I'm not, I wasn't even living here. I'm not a part of this. And he's like, your friends are stupid, you know. Um, but we really reconnected through skateboarding, you know. Um, you know, my friends and I, we started skateboarding and we built a ramps and you know, we were building ramps and he just was one day Henry rode by on the skateboard and we thought oh that guy's on the skateboard now and he said he came over and said like that's kind of cool and he said can I ride it and then we just fell back together and pretty much inseparable after that I mean he, you know obviously you know he moved to LA in 19 when he was 19 years old to be in Black Flag um, I drove him to the ground station and I helped packed him up I brought his stuff to my to, to Discord house or to my house. Where I actually, I still live at home. I think of it. I brought all of his stuff. Like he had nowhere to put his stuff, so I took it all, and then took him to the Greyhound station. And, and he left with like you know a change of clothes and the, you know some and like a notebook. You know that's all he had. And um, but we've always stayed in touch. He's you know was, as I said, I love the guy. He's really he's yeah. my best friend. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So are you? Um, kind of, I guess, back to the the current uh, state of hardcore. Are you aware of the band Gloss? Or G L O S S. G L O S S. Yeah. G? Yes. Where are they from? Uh, Olympia. I don't think I've heard them. Um, yeah. So they kind of came in. I mean, not like the news, like the news, but uh, they kind of made um, some headlines when um, this past fall. They turned down uh, a record deal from Epitaph um, because Epitaph is owned by some um, big corporation or something. And then uh, a week later, there was um, they announced that they were breaking up. Um, and there weren't many details on that, but a lot of people kind of came to take it that they um, had broken up because it was, it was something to do with that whole Epitaph uh, thing. And... So a afterwards, in the aftermath of that, a lot of people were describing it as kind of gloss living by the Fugazi Code. I'm not making that term up. Um, have you heard of, of the term Fugazi Code? No, but I, I get I mean, I've certainly <laughs> yeah. heard yeah. over the years people saying, like, you know, well, you're Fugazi, you can do that. We can't. Um, but my, I mean, I don't know gloss. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't do nothing about this epitaph thing. I don't, I'm not, totally unaware of this whole story i know nothing about it what i can say is it's probably one of the reasons you know like they probably didn't agree about with each other they were yeah. they weren't getting along yeah and they and didn't make like a press people, statement right, so there probably some people in the band who maybe thought we'd like to do something with epitaph and other people were like mm -hmm. we don't want to we don't want to and so they weren't getting along they weren't but that probably that's what most people inferred from that whole thing um there are people navigating like you know probably kids navigating a certain circumstances and yeah. I think that I'm, I'm irritated by the notion that Fugazi like people have sort of isolated us and say well Fugazi can do that you know but we can't and it's ironic the whole point of, of the work that I've done with you know Discord and Meyer Threat and uh, Fugazi is, is I mean, I didn't go to, like, I never went to college. I've never had a manager. I don't have a lawyer. I don't really have any advisors, you know. So 
I, my point was always like, hey, this is like, if I can do this, it's doable. Like, that's how I looked at it. It's like, it's like, it's possible. That's all we wanted to say. It's like, it's possible. But then people turned into like this sort of thing like, well, those guys can do it. Nobody else can do it. Um, and that's, that, it's not, was not the intention. I didn't want to become a token. Well, yeah, I mean, like, you look at, there are other bands definitely out, I mean, not anymore, but, like, Bound the Music Industry is an example. They they were, they kind of had a similar thing, and at the end they were all, like, good friends when they kind of broke up, but it was just that, that the lifestyle that they had to um, kind of like managing everything, um, it just wasn't doable for them. Do you think it's it's possible to have, like, a sustainable band under this, um, I guess, like un- under under the I guess the way that Fugazi operated, um, because you know you, I, I guess no, I, I, yeah I guess what I, you I, see. No, I, I know it. I don't think it. I know it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because was, when you was, guys, just, what does that mean, sustainable though? What do you mean by yeah. that? Yeah. So when you guys went on hiatus, I mean, I guess the impression that I got from that was that it was basically like you guys were all like good with each other, but you, um, I don't know. I guess touring like that and and having crowds come out like when when you have like a big enough following and you're trying to kind of just play shows um around the country with with five dollar um admission and and everything it's it's kind of hard i mean at, at a certain point does that become poss- uh, impossible to organize or was it just um you guys figured you'd done what you were going to do I guess that was just the impression. Um, I, I guess I, I would reframe the whole thing. I would. Okay. I think that you're. My okay. sense is. Maybe I just got to. I didn't uh, read that. Yeah, I think I would reframe correctly. it by saying that. Okay. The BAM, like, for 15 years, which is a long time, right? Yeah. No, yeah. I'm not. Uh, yeah. Us, that's, oh, no, hear me out. Hear that's me definitely out. impressed. Yeah. Hear me out. The four of us made Fugazi, the band, the central part of our lives. Like, everything we do basically is around the band for 15 years. And at some point in our lives, other things were going on. People, you know, were coming and going. People were dying and being born. And the way we were working, the way we had become accustomed to working, was not really feasible in terms of dealing with things that we had put off all those years while we were working on the band. Do I think that it suggests that the, what we were doing was unsustainable? No, I don't think that. I think it was sustainable for as long as it needed to be done. But it's not, Fugazi was not a career. If, you know, we weren't a business. It wasn't as if we were opening a business and now we had to close our doors. We were actually a creative, like, we were a creative family. And, the, and part of the creativity that we engage in is maybe making music or putting on shows or playing gigs or or being creative in the way we navigate the business environment, or maybe our creativity has to do with how what we do not on the stage or what we're doing not making music or not engaging in that part of it. Like I feel like the four of us, like I, you know, I'm in touch with all those guys all the time. I mean, Joe's here now. Like he's, you know, he's he's actually working with me here at the house. And you know, I think that we're, I think that people's sense of the band, like it wasn't that we were overwhelmed by our popularity or anything like that. In fact, it was just that there was time for us to do other things that didn't involve, you know, doing like being on the tour, tour for three or four months out of the year. But having said that, you know, um, it's no question that, you know, one of the more daunting aspects of, of 
you know, thinking about playing again is just just how uh, insane the music business has become. And just not, like, not, I just don't, I never liked it. You know, I didn't like doing the music business. I, we did it because we had to. You know, the dealing with the clubs and all that stuff was, you know, it was it was a lot of work. And it wasn't saying, you know, I'm, I come out of a punk, like a punk background. In my, in my mind, I'm more interested in gigs that are in basements than I am in, like, giant theaters. So, um, so there was an element of it where I would just, you know, we did it because we had to do it. But it doesn't mean that we're, um, it just, yeah, so we, you know, it was it didn't mean like we were doing it. And we're like, oh, we can't handle this anymore. We give up. There's no, there was never any, there's no surrender. That's all. There was never a surrender. And in terms of like the, the door price and all that stuff, it wasn't like you know we were insisting on a five dollar door everywhere we went. It was what we were trying to do was we were trying to bring a real economy to the equation because the way ticket prices are set now are based on it's a it's a it's not real. It's just what the ticket prices you see today are largely is largely evidence of a broad spectrum of greed. You know, people, everybody wanting a bigger piece of the pie. Um, but the way we approached our shows is by um, we would set an ideal ticket price we thought was fair, which is basically we think something that is equivalent to what people would pay to see a movie. The way we figure people would pay. Now, for instance, they're paying ten to twelve dollars to see a, a light on a on a wall. They could pay that much to see human beings who've driven all day to play music, right? Seems pretty fair to me, you know. Um, so back then, ticket prices, you know, movies were five or six bucks, or whatever it was. So that's what we were shooting. That's what we kind of shot for. And then by using that as sort of a baseline, then we would break down the economics of the actual gig. And we found out that you can cut so much stuff out that you can make it efficient. I mean, you're, I mean, we all own houses, so it wasn't impossible, right? We did our work. It's just a different way of approaching things. It's a creative response to a vexing industry. That's, um, so now that there's starting to be more legislator kind of cracking down on um, ticket scalpers, um, do you think do you think that that's kind of a step closer? to being, to kind of having a, a kind of the scene that you were looking to have um, when you set out to make Fugaz. Do you think that that makes it easier for people to um, kind of live in the way, or kind of uh, operate in the way that you were just describing? Um, I, don't, I don't, I think, I guess I don't, I think, again, I feel like that the, I don't know anything about what, legislation you're talking about or I think you, it was just in but, New York but it was right, I it was like, I, I guess I feel like generally speaking shows in which ticket scalpers are really operative are not really the shows I'm talking about okay like the shows I'm talking about the shows that I kind of feel most at home with there's nobody's there's no scalpers it's just they're just people making music for a community it's not about it's not you know we're not talking about hot tickets shows that people all want to get into yeah, I but mean, you have expressed that, yeah. that uh, I guess, one of the problems with the kind of prospect of Fugazi um, playing oh, sure. again is that, like, you know, you would have um, those those ticket scalpers and, and you would have tickets to a Fugazi show going for $100, which is just kind of like, right, I don't know, d doesn't make yeah, any right. sense. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. I, you know, I, I mean, honestly, 
I mean, I say I don't mean to be coy about it. Uh, you know, I, when I say those things, it's not as if, like, that's what's blocking us. Like, oh, you know, they, they can't figure out how to deal with the business part of it. That's not the issue. The issue is that it's just not what we're doing now. We may or may not in the future decide, the four of us decide to play music, we will. And that's just, or we won't. But if we decide that we want to do something, I can almost guarantee you that we will sit down and really do our homework and come up with ways to navigate this ridiculous music business. We'll figure it out, you know. Like, we're going to – it's just – but there's no reason in me – like, I don't need to really sit down and bang my head against the wall unless there's we're actually going to do it, right? You know, like, I, I mean, I'm more interested – like, for instance, the Evens, you know, Amy and I, like, the way we, net, way we were going around was, you know, that was the challenge. That was what I'm thinking about. Like, and now, like, I'm just thinking about, like, you know, can we get this new thing going? Are we going to have, a, like, are we are we going to finish these songs? I'm only doing the work that's in front of me. And if this band, this thing we're working on now starts gigging, then, like, we have ideas about the kind of place that we want to play and the place that we don't want to play. And so then that'll be our focus. If in the future, at some point, Brennan and Guy and Joe and I decide to do something, then I'll turn my attention to that. But there's no point in me trying to solve the riddle of, of, what would t- it would take to get Fugazi back on stage until the Fugazi people all want to be back on stage. That's all. It's a consensus. So it's not, I don't, I don't want to give the sense that, yeah, that it's that like, like you know, if for, this happens, like, then Fugazi yeah. will like immediately be back on stage. Um, we'll, I get if that. we decide to do it, we'll figure it out. That's, and if we don't, then that's fine too. I, it doesn't matter. I'll be in Fugazi till the day I die. I'm not worried about, you know, it's not I mean, technically it's still a band. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, I've got a few more questions. Um, first, first off, uh, this was actually from somebody who who uh, donated to uh, help the the show. So this is this isn't my own question, but I am I'm relaying it to you. Um, do you feel that today's punk scene is a natural evolution of the scene you are a part of, or has the modern punk community evolved to become what you are trying to create a refuge from? Um, I would have to get the the person who asked the question to define what, the, what that person is referring to. I have seen clear examples of both. There are things, there are, I've met kids who are identify as punk um, or hardcore now um, who may be making music that I'm not, like, doesn't necessarily speak to me, but who I think are really cool kids who are, have the, just are trying to do the right thing in their own lives, they're trying to do trying to make a make a community for themselves and I think that's great. I've also met people who identify as punk or hardcore who are just kind of doing like some weird high, like version of like their, what they they're careerists. They're just thinking about like how to make money and this is a, a they're like is, and that I does not that I actually, you know, I do find a lot of the so-called alternative bands I mean, there's so much emphasis on the you know in, in industry structure like with agents and promotional people. I don't relate to that stuff because to me that was sort of the bad part of the rock business. But that's what I know a lot of people who are in really cool bands that just spend a lot of energy trying to figure out how to get, you know, how to play that game or, or how to do that work. So I don't really feel, to me that's exactly what I was trying to get away from. But it doesn't mean that I think they're doing things wrong. It just means that's what I was trying to get away from. And I, I find it a little bit trying um, when I'm like hearing about the, the, the situations. Uh, so I would say that by and large, I think people who, you know, gen- or genuinely underground, like not, you know, 
the, that punk scene, I think that, you know, regardless of whether or not it's, you know, music or attitude that I necessarily can relate to, um, of course that's a, it's a natural, you know, it's an extension of the community I was a part of and the community of which I was a descendant of. It's not like we, we didn't create this. We're just part of it. It's a long, it's a lineage that goes back, you know, it predates civilization. I mean, you know, don't forget, um, in my opinion, music is a form of communication that predates language. So I feel like the music, the essence of music is always going to be, in the, you know, as a, as a, a, uh, a gathering point and, uh, and, you know, something that brings some, maybe inspires or encourages people in one form or another and, um, uh, and is central to, like, sort of communities and, and tribes. Um, that's always been the case. It, it gets confused because, you know, the music industry wants it to be a, a consumable, you know, it's a, it's a product. Um, and so it gets confusing because people think, oh, that's what the point of it is. But actually, I think that people who really respond to music, it's not the product they're interested in. It's what is happening, what, what music does. Because what music is really, if you think about it, is it's a human being's ability to assemble, um, take sounds and, and assemble them in a way that, 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 that provoke emotional response. It's incredible. It's an incredible phenomenon. And um, I think that uh, people, I think it, it, it helps us remember that, like, that we are connected. So I'm, you know, from my point of view, that was always, has always been the case. I inherited it. It was not something, it was not a gift I created. I like to think that it was a gift I inherited and that I did and I continue to try to take care of that gift to make sure that it continues to um, provide, you know, to, I can continue to hand it off to other people who are doing the same thing. That's, you know, that's the way I look at it. Um, okay, so um, I'm just going to, real quick before we wrap up, I want to take a, a kind of hard turn into politics because you're kind of really at the center of the political landscape. Um, are you going to be attending the inauguration a week from today? Are you going to be att um, attending the inauguration a week from today? I don't. I never. I never go to inaugurations. Okay. <laughs> I, live, I was. Yeah, I was going to ask. I'll put out of the mob, but out of the march the next day, probably. Yeah, you know, there's a big march, which I like to think of it as not a counter inaugural or, or an anti-Bush march, but rather, I'm sorry, anti-Trump march, but rather like to think of it as um, it's a it's a demonstration of the sort of the the, the conscious ballast of this country, that there is, there are, you know, that there is this enormous, you know, uh, there's, you know, this, I would think actually the majority of the people who live in this country give a damn. And, you know, while all the kind of insanity and ugliness and, and unpleasantness that is sort of attend politics in general, it's especially on display this time around. And I, I like to think that with the march on the 21st is, is really just to show, to remind everybody there's also this, you know, huge part of the population who needs to be remembered while politicians are fighting each other and and, um, and, establish, and, and going through their power stuff, which is, and, which is going to cause a lot of, I think, discomfort for people, like the, the, what the politicians are doing. So I'm not, you know, but, um, I would, but I don't ever go to the inauguration. I, it, it's just... 
I mean, they call it pomp and circumstance for, for you know, it's like it's, it's not interesting to me. It's also, I mean, if you live in Washington, D.C., which you know, I've lived here my entire life, you become really accustomed to this sort of notion that you're, you just get, like, new bosses. They just come in every four years. And you and, and, the, and the people, like the right, you know, the Republican Party love changing laws here in D.C. against the people who, like, you know, we had pretty strict gun control in this city, and the Republican Party, using the courts, forced us to, like, lose that gun control, even though everybody in the city, like, by far the majority of the people in the city voted to have it. But we were stripped of it because the Republican Party likes to likes to play with us, like, you know, like a cat likes to play with a, do- a ball or something, you know. Um, so we're somewhat accustomed to having unwanted guests. Um, and <laughs> I, I think that we're just going to, we just have to figure out how to navigate it. You know, I don't, you know, I, I understand people's um, fear of the incoming administration. I do think that a lot of that fear is a result of, I think, irresponsible journalism, because everyone for months and months and months saying like the, if you know Donald Trump is elected, it'll be the end of the world, because they just they're being derisive and 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 then so at some point people really believe that. So now that this has come to pass, now everyone's freaking out because they've been reading this thing over and over and over and over. I don't think it'll be the end of the world. Um, I think that's going to be there'll be some discomfort and some. I mean, already it's just such ridiculousness going on. Um, but you know we'll. We're going to get through it. We're going to we'll get through it. It's just, you know, I think that, you know, the real issue right now is, you know, we have two years to figure out how to, you know, vote the Republicans out of power of the houses. And, you know, that's that's the job right now to try to, like, you know, counterbalance this situation. But whatever, you know, at the end of the day, like if you, you know, at the end of the day, I'm with the, the birds in the trees before I'm with the politicians. And the birds in the trees, honestly, you know, well, I would say they they don't give an F, you know. They just they, they're just not. They you know they were here before and they'll be here afterwards. So like this kind of stuff is, you know, I think that people should be politically active and they should be aware. But if it's just making you miserable or terrified, then that's not very productive. Yeah, you once said uh, America is just a word, and what it actually means is left to each person to figure out for themselves. Um, what does that? What does it mean to you? I guess. What does America mean to you? I think it's a. In my mind, it's a. It's a. Um, well, of course, it's an, it's imaginary. It's, you know, America is largely. It's you know, it's the result of an, a, a, a fictional line. You know, just you know, imaginary, mm-hmm. invisible line, drawn around a geographic place. It, you know, that. And by lassoing this, you know, these people, it's kind of created a culture. Um, but the, the America that I feel connected to is not one that is set, set apart from the rest of the world, um, but it's it's rather the, the sort of the the flavor of the human population that happens to be on this particular continent. You know, like I, and I like to think that we're connected to all the other continents. I don't think I don't believe in American exceptionalism whatsoever. I think it's ridiculous. Um, I don't think America is number one. I don't. I think all that stuff is just absurd. It's completely absurd. Uh, I think you know. I think that America is where I woke up, and there is some really beautiful things about um, 
about this culture. There's incredible, um, you know, there's incredible energy and incredible creativity. Uh, there's, you know, there's, you know, I love, I love the kind of the culture that I feel connected to, but that's because I'm connected to it. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, but I don't think it's better than other, like other countries. You know, I don't think I don't think like that. I mean, people just say, like, God, you must really love Washington because you've been there your whole life and must think it's the greatest city. But I, I don't think that. I just think it's where I am. So take care, you know, like this, if, this, if you're if it's where you are, then, you know, if it's, like, if you if it can work, if you don't, if one doesn't need to escape, and I know there's certainly places in the world where you're like, I have to get away from here because I can't, I'm, like, it's too suffocating. But if it's not, then... Like, if wherever you are, even if you're in a place that's suffocating, do your best to make it, like, healthy. You know, be well, do well. That just seems like such an obvious thing. So I, I don't I, – I feel really centered here in Washington because that's where my family is. But I also – I've been fortunate to go travel around the world, and I go to other places, and I think, wow, this this is amazing. It's human beings – are incredible. The world's amazing, and I'm glad to be a part of it. And the part that I happen to be, you know, the part of it that I am is happens to be called America. Well, thank you for taking up uh, part of your very busy life to uh, talk to me today, Ian. I've uh, just got one more question. I just like asking this question because um, I, I think it's a, a fun question to whoever um, I may interview. And not this exact question, but like. A variation on it, um, but what is your favorite Fugazi album? And um, and explain as much as you would like. Oh sure, I mean I can. I, there's basically two. I mean I, all the records, of course, they all you know. Of course, you love all your children, so it's not really <laughs> like you can't really. Each one has their different has different aspects. I would say that the record that I'm the most comfortable listening to is probably the instrument soundtrack. Um, and the reason for that is that the instrument soundtrack is a collection of recordings that were not recorded for the, with the intent of being heard of public exposure. We were, they were demos. So the way we were playing is really relaxed. It's the way, and you know, Fugazi, we played a lot of shows. And we put out, and we did some time in the studio. But we really spent a lot of time practicing. And when we were really working, we would practice three, four, sometimes five hours a day for four or five days a week. We just loved playing together. We just sit and play and play, and that, that experience of getting together and playing music together was really important and profound. And so the recordings that are on the instrument soundtrack, are, a lot of those are just very um, informal. They were just recordings of us practicing that we had kind of created. You know, you know we have... I mean, we have hours of stuff like that. But when we did the the movie, we were needed to come up with some ideas for soundtrack. We said well, we have this stuff already. We never ever thought that we were going to release it or make it public. But in some ways, that music is the, the stuff that's on there is just just reminds me of practicing, which I like. Um, I think our last record, I think our instrument's pretty realized, pretty darn good record that one, you know, but I think that was when we really I think that we, starting in Red Medicine we really started to get our mind around recording in a studio with the, how we can bring um, 
like our the way we we uh, the way we engage with live performance i think we really kind of you know we became close to mastering that early on like we just loved playing and we really got into that but recording would took us a longer took us a long time to understand how to approach recording in a way that would be bring the same kind of um uh, I know we were able to we were able to bring the same kind of vision or to the way we approached playing live. We just you know recording. We were just trying to document our live shows. We'd go we'd go in the studio and just play live and record it. But it wasn't until later that we started about how we could use a studio in the different ways. And Red Medicine was the first time we really started to get into it. But I think the last record, the Argument record, you know, I really felt like you know we it was really like I felt like it was you know accomplished. I like that record. But having said that, I don't listen to any of them. So that's like, I mean, you know, each record, I say each record has its, has, you know, has a story. And, but I remember when we finished the argument, we were in the studio for a couple of weeks probably, and it was such a satisfying experience. I remember as soon as we got out, I just said, I said to those guys, let's just book, like, I looked at the calendar and I saw that Inner Ear, you know, had a, they, he wasn't booked for a couple more weeks. I was like, let's just book it out and let's just write another record right now. Like, this is, and they're like, you're crazy. We didn't have any songs. But I thought, let's just do it because it was so enjoyable being in the studio. I love being in the studio because it's, it's like being on a submarine or something. You know, you just, it says you and the rest, you know, the band and, and the engineer and you're just fo so focused and it's all you're doing. And I love that. Yeah, well, th thank you for talking with me today, um, and yeah, thank you for uh, for everything you have. Uh, what? Oh, sorry, What's are that? you gonna edit? So you gonna edit this? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'll post, I'll probably post it somewhere in full, but uh, I'll just edit it down a bit for, um, for, cool. per for like radio purposes, um, to keep it concise. Well, but I, I will, I will keep the full version. Just send me a link so I can check yeah. out what you can. Yeah, sure thing. Cool, man. And yeah. yeah, thanks for patience and getting it organized. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, if you know the guys in Gloss, tell them <laughs> make another band. Yeah, I I will. All right. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Slip's not a slide In other words, not to get it wrong Pointless to walk, pass out to run Scaring the weight of watchful eyes Love to sleep under clear, expensive skies Thank you.